name is Doug Reeside. Um, I've been attending this church for about 12 years now. My wife, Marilyn, is over there. I know there's a few new people here. Um, so those of you who have been here over the last couple of weeks uh, know that we're going over CBC's core values as we prepare for a lot of transition in the coming months. And uh, Dick has asked me to speak about one of the core values that's very important to me at, um, that's very important to me. So at CBC, one of our core values is unity and the essentials. We can bring that up. Thank you. So uh, this is part of an idea that was expressed by an obscure 17th century theologian named Marco Antonio de Dominis. Um, and it was often quoted in the church when I, where I grew up. The, the full quote is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So that, that phrase isn't in the Bible, and the guy who wrote it seems to have switched parties a couple of times uh, for political advantage. Um, but it's still an idea that I think is pretty sympathetic with the ideas of Jesus and the other New Testament writers. But like a lot of pithy sound bites, it needs a lot of, uh, I think, unpacking and context and nuance if it's to be truly useful. So before, um, you can keep it up there for now, uh, before Marilyn and I moved uh, into the New York area, we came from a church in Washington, D.C. And this church, uh, Washington Community Fellowship, had been founded by Mennonite Christians. Now, I didn't really know very much about the Mennonites before we started going to that church. We were invited by a, uh, a college friend of ours who had started going several years before. Um, but uh, since the time that the, the church had been founded by the Mennonites, it, it had become a community in which lots of people from different denominations and backgrounds worshiped together in unity. I, I might have shared this story before, but there was one particularly striking moment of unity on the essentials that happened when a couple of parents in the church who were Presbyterian wanted to baptize their newborn infant. The pastor, who was also actually a bishop in the Mennonite church, uh, could not in good conscience perform the ceremony, which violated his view of adult baptism, of believer baptism. Uh, but rather than forbid the baptism or violate his own theology, he preached a sermon on Christian unity and explained why his own belief uh, on this de debatable matter would mean that he could not perform the baptism. But the, then he invited an elder who came from a different uh, Presbyterian tradition to actually perform the baptism. So unity on that Sunday, at least, did not mean conceding theological positions. The pastor retained his position and the, the family retained theirs. But it did mean that the pastor acknowledged that others that he considered to be followers of Jesus believed differently on this matter. Um, the church that I grew up in uh, was part of the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement. It's sometimes called the Independent Christian Church, and it was founded by Presbyterians in the early days of the 19th century and the generation after the American Revolution. Uh, it really got started in the northern area of Kentucky near Ohio. The founders, um, this is again the time right after the revolution, the War of 1812 has just happened also, uh, they wanted to depart from the creeds and the, the, the theologies developed in European churches and instead focus exclusively on what they believe the Bible taught and I think implicitly also created an American church. Um, as laudable as these ideas might have been in theory, they break down pretty quickly though, as the Bible has of course been interpreted in lots of different ways and what is considered essential doctrine can differ from person to person and from church to church. And in fact, the Stone Campbell movement that I grew up in uh, quickly split into three different, stra <coughs> three different strands. Um, um, yeah, so the, the movement split into three different strands. The one that I grew up in is most popular in the Midwest. Um, other churches that came out of the 
uh, movement include the Non-Instrumental Church of Christ, uh, which only believes in a cappella music. I think Wanda uh, came out of that um, ministry. They're uh, most popular in the American South. Um, in this area, in the uh, New York area, the more theologically and politically liberal Disciples of Christ Church, the one that has the St. Andrew's Cross, Little Red Cross, and a, a goblet on their logo, uh, is more common. Excuse me. So even within these three, uh, even within these three strands, so even within the Church of Christ and all the others, <clears throat> different churches value different ideas that they believe to be essential. I remember one time in college, I spent an enjoyable but probably not particularly edifying road trip, uh, reading through the newsletter of one of the non-instrumental churches of Christ that one uh, of the fellow members of my campus ministry belonged to, and we were kind of laughing at the debates and the, this uh, treatise on whether women should wear pants or whether church kitchen, kitchens were sinful. <laughs> there seems to be uh, something about the human condition in which legalism, as Jeff Goldblum might say, always finds a way. Um, anyway, uh, the aphorism in essentials' own uh, unity is easy when everyone is unified on what they believe to be essential. However, it can also lead to a, uh, an incredibly insular church, which is, rarely, uh, which is entirely unified because all dissenting views have been expelled. And even if it happens that that church somehow manages to be exactly theologically correct on every matter, it's then at risk of disunity the moment a visitor who sincerely believes something else walks through the door. And yet, if there's no shared belief in a community, it's really a neighborhood more than a church. Neighborhood, neighbors might, of course, live together in harmony and mutual, mutual tolerance without sharing any theology, but a church implies, I think, more commonality of beliefs. In the New Testament, the Greek word that we translate as church, ekklesia, means assembly or literally those called out of something, presumably their homes, for a common purpose. Now, I, I'm an academic in the United States who grew up in the 1980s, so I have an exceptionally strong tendency towards individualism and a deep suspicion of groupthink. Um, you can go to the next slide. When I think of a unified, unified thought, I tend to think of uh, Nazis marching through the Brandenburg Gate or synchronized flag waving in North Korea or chanting pagan monks in an Indiana Jones film. Go to the next, um, next slide, please. Thank you. Um, that said, I do occasionally I do recognize that there are times when it's important that everyone be on the same page, or at least be willing to act as if they are. Um, this past week, I flew to visit my parents in Alabama uh, on an airplane, and on that airplane, I was very happy that all the passengers seemed to at least act as if they believed that opening the emergency door in, during takeoff and landing was a bad idea. Um, I also assume that scientific communication is a lot easier when scientists can assume that their peers know generally the same body of knowledge and generally accept it. I imagine it's a lot easier to pursue quantum computing, for instance, if you don't need to explain and prove the theories of relativity at the beginning of each article that you submit to a journal. The same can be true in the church. In fact, the author of Hebrews, we can go to the next slide, um, recognizes this in the famous passage in chapter six, when they write, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ um, and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance, of acts that lead to death, of faith in God, instructions about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. So the author of Hebrews, we don't know who the author was, wanted, we can leave it up for just a minute so people can keep looking at it. The, the author wanted to offer to the church teaching that they assumed, um, that assumed they were already with these, uh, comfortable with these basic teachings, but the church that the author of Hebrews was writing to wasn't, uh, knew that this church wasn't ready. They hadn't yet moved beyond these basic teachings. 
This sort of reminds me of C.S. Lewis's novel, The Great Divorce, in which the, the narrator, maybe C.S. Lewis in the story, um, encounters his favorite dead Christian author, George MacDonald, at the edge of heaven. And in this vision of heaven, new souls are arriving constantly on buses from um, basically the land of the dead, purgatory or hell, whatever you want to call it. And um, those who have been in heaven for some time have to come back to greet the new arrivals. But the author recognizes that this, the author George MacDonald, when he was talking to the narrator, recognizes that this is a huge sacrifice for them. So George MacDonald says, every one of us lives only to journey further and further into the mountains, go, that is to go further up and in into heaven. And every one of us has interrupted that journey and retraced immeasurable distances to come down today on the mere of, chance of saving some ghosts or the new, new arrivals from purgatory. So they keep go, wanting to go up, but they have to keep coming back and retrace their steps. And I think on earth, life in the church is somewhat the same situation. We may long to dig deeper into God, as one of our COVID-era mission statements put it, but we must also remember our responsibility to help less mature believers master the essentials of the faith. So what are these essentials that CBC values unity on? I mean, I think the, the uh, ideas in Hebrews are a pretty good set, repentance of act, from acts that lead to death, faith in God, instructions about baptism, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Um, there's probably some essentials in there, but obviously things like instructions about baptism or the laying on of hands are areas in which there is some theological diversity. It's a bit of a cop-out, but I think if we want to get kind of essentialist about the essentials, we can look to Jesus's answer, we can go to the next uh, slide, to the teacher of the law when they, he asked him to name the greatest commandment. Jesus responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands. Now, the... I think these are the essentials, but in order to practice these, we need to expand out both what love for God means and what love for neighbor means. And this is where it gets a little bit messy. Um, however, the minute we find we aren't doing one of these two things, the minute we find that we are, are not doing something for someone else that we would want them to do for us, or that we aren't motivated by love for God, we're violating one of those essentials on which we're supposed to be unified. This is part of the catchphrase from the, um, the 16th century theologian in All Things Charity. Uh, where that comes into place. So how are we unified? How do we know the essentials and unify around them? Well, as far as defining them here at CBC, we do have a statement of beliefs that more or less summarizes the Luzon Covenant uh, that, the that a bunch of evangelical churches articulated as a basic set of beliefs in the 1970s. So this statement of beliefs is on our website, and I encourage you to read it if you haven't read it already. It actually fits on a single page, and if I count correctly, it consists of about 15 sentences that mostly talk about things like the nature of the triune God, the deity of Jesus, the importance of the Bible, and the resurrection of the dead. Most theological, theologically conservative Protestants, including Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Pentecostals, could probably affirm our statement of beliefs, and possibly with a few more caveats, so could most Catholics. We've intentionally, intentionally left those idea, areas where there is established theological difference among Christians, things like the practice of baptism and communion and predestination and calling and ideas about the end times and the nature of miraculous gifts for our members to seek out um, as they uh, work under the common idea that the scripture is authoritative. While we do, of course, for, some, for practical reasons, share some common practices, we only share communion once a month, 
Um, we don't tend to speak in tongues or engage in a static prophecy in our services, at least right now. And uh, we baptize relatively infrequently at special services. Our members with different beliefs are encouraged to hold them and even to share them. And actually, even those who quibble with one of our core beliefs are allowed to be members. They're only asked not to teach anything that is contrary to these essential beliefs. And this condition is made all the more, this condition to not teach on them is made all the more meaningful because we invite speakers from a variety of backgrounds to speak in our pulpit. This is today, me. Um, so, uh, and this is the reason why Marilyn and I actually chose to join this church. When we first uh, moved to the Westchester area, we Googled interdenominational churches. It was a term that we learned when we were at that Mennonite church in DC, and it doesn't always have a super consistent definition, um, but at least it, it often suggests there are multiple theological pre uh, ideas or perspectives present in one church. We were also impressed by the statement of faith and humility and the humility in which it was articulated on the website. Uh, we met in an interdenominational campus ministry in Missouri, and we participated in that church in DC, and so we felt it was beneficial to serve in a community that had lots of perspectives of our infinite and ineffable God, a place where theological identity was not based on the exclusion of those believed to be wrong, but on those essentials which the church felt there was general consensus about. And I think CBC is a pretty good representation of that, but let's not get too comfortable. First of all, uh, Marilyn and I sought out a church that believed in the same openness and welcomed the same diversity that we did, and also believed all the same essentials that we held sacred. What about the non-believer who checks out this church, or the person who doesn't believe in a literal hell or heaven, or the person who feels like a large portion of scripture is not uh, inspired? Do we block them at the door? Do we reserve a special heretics row for them? Um, do we uh, eventually assign them coffee duty and regularly try to convince them to believe what we consider essential, but let them basically hang out with us? It's, um, it's worth noting that in American churches today, theological concepts and practices are actually less likely to be uh, causes of division uh, than other things like worship styles. Do we uh, have contemporary worship or traditional worship? And since 2016, especially politics. The average American Baptist and Lutheran may disagree on infant baptism, but they may hold very strong opinions on uh, race theory, abortion, immigration, um, things that, uh, and, and they may believe that they represent the only moral opinion on these ideas. So how do we find unity when these factors divide us so deeply? In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul explains that unity is not achieved through blunt force methods, through the elimination of those who disagree with you, uh, but through a combination of supernatural action and self-sacrifice. And I actually have to confess that until we started this series a couple of weeks ago, I never noticed that the major theme of the book of Ephesians is actually finding unity in Christ. Probably everybody else knew that. I didn't know that. Um, Paul actually begins the letter. We can go to the next slide. Um, in one of his extended and often kind of flowery introductions, he says, with all wisdom and understanding, he, God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So just to take a minute to read that. Paul seems to be saying that one of the mysteries of the gospel one of the, in fact, the reason for Jesus, one of the reasons for Jesus' incarnation and death is to bring all, unity to all things in heaven and on earth. And then he goes on to say that as God gives us more and more revelations, we will understand that the current order of things with all its allegiances uh, to different political parties and different authorities is being replaced by a new kingdom, a new authority, a new arrangement of things, a new kingdom 
headed by Christ. And then Paul gets to his main point, his effort in this letter, to reconcile Gentiles and Jewish Christians in Ephesus. Uh, and remember, for the Jews, this reconciliation with the Gentiles doesn't simply mean putting aside customs or worship preferences. It actually means accepting those who, according to them, are breaking the laws that God gave the Jews by eating unclean food and failing to observe the other parts of the covenant. The Gentiles, on the other hand, have been introduced to this gospel under the uh, assumption and the understanding that they're not going to be bound by this, these Jewish traditions. And many of them may have philosophical training and education that makes the Jewish rules and ideas seem ridiculous or even kind of disgusting to them. But then Paul explains, I think we've got a new slide. Yeah, good. Um, that Jesus himself is our peace, who made the two groups, the Gentiles and the, um, the Jews, one, and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, but by setting aside in his flesh the law with all its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. In the discussion group in the lounge a few weeks ago, we were looking at this passage, and I noticed, I think for the first time, the strange phrasing that on the cross, Jesus actually, along with being put to death himself, he also put to death something, the hostility that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. By his broken body, he has created a new and unified flesh. So he took, out of two, he's created one. And this echoes, actually, surprising to me anyway, the famous passage about marriage that's a little later in this very chapter. Uh, Paul begins by talking about first century rules for order in the family and how husbands should care for their wives, but then he takes a detour and he writes, you can go to the next slide, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And I've always taken this passage to be a mystical reference to the union of Jesus and the church and the way it represents marriage. But in the context, I think it may also remind us that we're supposed to think about how G Jews and Gentiles are unified in one body. But to do that, they both had to leave their father and mother. That is, they had to put aside the foundational identities that they held before and create a new family that will be separate from the ones they came from. And I think we have to do that today in the church as well, as we find unity in Christ, as we leave our political and theological backgrounds and join together in a new family. And I find this really exciting, but I realize I'm not sure what to do about it. So let's take a step back for this um, and think about what it means for finding unity in the essentials. How do we pursue this unity and leave our political, racial, economic, and theological fathers and mothers and join with those from different families? So Paul gives us a direction in uh, chapter four that we read today, uh, together actually, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, for there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. As we live and work together, we need to focus on humility. That is, we always need to be doing the hard and soul-denying, crucifying work of reminding ourselves that we might be wrong about the things that we're most sure that we're right about. We also need to be completely gentle, reminding ourselves that even if we are right, we need to approach others with the gentleness that we would want from them if they were right and we were wrong. This requires, as Paul points out, patience and bearing with one another in love. 
And I, I find those words are kind of fuzzy and warm, bearing with one another in love, patience, because I think I imagine other people being patient and bearing with me. But the command is to keep on bearing with your fellow church member who you feel is holding back the church, or who through their error, maybe even their sin, is forcing us to come over and over again back to the bus stop at the edge of heaven, rather than moving in the direction that we feel uh, called to explore um, by God. And then later in, in Ephesians, all of these passages, except for the, the gospel one, are from Ephesians. Um, Paul writes, and this is the passage for today. So Paul himself, so, sorry, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of fullness in Christ. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's, let's try a little bit. Um, Jesus, uh, sorry, the, Paul says that Christ gave the church leaders, that is the apostles, etc., um, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. I think if I were Paul or even if I were trying to recite this passage from memory, I might have said, um, so, Paul, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people uh, with the teachings of the Lord and the story of the gospel or with the correct theology, or with the mysteries of Christ. But for Paul, church, the church and unity is established by our leaders, helping us be better equipped to serve. And somehow in the service, Paul seems to say, the church will be established and will grow um, as we grow in the knowledge and faith of our Lord. And actually, Paul says that this act, these acts of service, these, these following Jesus in acts of service, are the best way to avo avoid false teaching that creates disunity. Um, Let's go to the next slide. So he says, uh, as the church is uh, equipped, we will no longer be uh, infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunningness and craftiness of people and their deceitful uh, scheming. And as we serve and we grow in our own knowledge, we can speak the truth in love, and the whole church will become in every way the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So from this passage, and really, I, I hadn't really thought of this until I started trying to prepare the sermon, um, the solution to unity seems to be to perform works of service. Like a lot of the gospel, this seems kind of counterintuitive, but as I think about my own experiences, I, I do find it to be kind of true. Faith, I think, must come from the working of God in our heart, and I don't think I can will myself to sincerely believe anything. For instance, I, I know full well that the Novocaine that they give me at the dentist's office is unlikely to cause me any harm. As much as I know that and try to convince myself of that, it doesn't stop my body and my mind from going into panic mode and passing out whenever I get Novocaine. It's true. Um, I can't will myself to believe that re reaction away. And I actually also don't believe we can argue anyone into faith. We can speak the truth in love, and if God has prepared a heart, the seed may grow, but it will not grow because we were somehow very persuasive. And even in the church, for those of us who share the same faith, during works of service, uh, which we perform while patiently bearing with one another in love, uh, we may start to understand perspectives of our fellow servants that we did not fully comprehend. And of course, there are cases where wrong beliefs can actually lead to harm to other people. When one or even a few members of the community are, believe these things that are harmful, it may be possible for the majority to gently lead them back to the truth while also protecting the vulnerable in the community. And I think of times when I've been a part of a church, even when I've been a part of this church, 
when some who've attended have had beliefs that were potentially harmful to others, and the churches had to respond by protecting the vulnerable while still doing what they could to care for the person who is wrong. But what if a majority of the church is deceived in a way in which unity is dishonoring to God? Many of the churches um, who received the first the letter to the um, the churches in Revelation seem to have been suffering from a widespread damaging false teaching. And more recently in human history, the church's support of American slavery or the German Nazi party are cases where dissenting voices like Bonhoeffer and others needed to loudly oppose the majority who might want to keep them silent. And I hope that this sort of um, mass delusion can be avoided if we're all doing our best to love God and love one another above, above all else. I think if the church is composed of people who are actually striving to be completely humble and gentle and to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love God with all we are, I suspect widespread heresies will be corrected before they can really become uh, blossom into the entire church. But there may be on occasions uh, times when being completely humble and gentle and love, loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength means that we, can, cannot, we cannot continue in unity with uh, those who continue to follow this, this destructive path. And it's, the and it's the responsibility of every follower of Jesus to do as the Samaritan did and care for those who have been attacked, injured, uh, sometimes by some of our own community. I suspect a splitting of paths, um, I, I suspect in some cases, a splitting of paths might be inevitable, but there should probably be a lot of speaking the truth in love and bearing with, another, with one another in patience before such a split. And in every step along the way, there's the hard and often unpleasant, frustrating, self-crucifying work of love. So what are the essentials that we're unified about at, at, at CBC? I really think that it makes sense to say that they really are truly bound up in Jesus' answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the one who knits us together, um, who brings us together into the new family um, through the marriage of the Son and the Church. I pray that you will constantly remind us with your spirit um, to be humble and gentle, to recognize that we might be wrong, and to also encourage us, encourage us to speak the truth in love when that's your calling for us. I pray that we may be unified as you are unified. In Jesus' name.